Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up-to-date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This is The Run-Through. I'm Chloe Mal. And I'm Cho Minardi. And today we have two really exciting interviews for you. Our colleagues on the Vogue Runway team interviewed two incredible designers who are both recipients of different awards from this year's CFDA. I know. I can't believe it's already uh, CFDA week. Um, I know. And, you know, we love to see women designers highlighted for their fabulous long careers as we're talking about the dearth of women designers. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, CFDAs are Monday night, November 6th. Natural History Museum, which I think is cool. But first, Choma, how is your immersion happening? Are you jet lagged still? Are you feeling like you're in the swing of things? Do you feel moved in? I feel like my feet haven't touched the ground. I'm sure. It has been a really fun whirlwind week. I've met, reconnected with a lot of great designers. I saw Erdem. I saw Martine Rose came in for um, a chat and Harris Reed. And and I met um, a new designer called Michael Stewart, who has a, has a brand called Standing Ground, which is incredible. So it's been really fun to get my... my um, to get stuck in here, but it has been quite busy. I'm um, sure. Yeah. And I'm look, figuring out my full look and it does definitely include, I've decided a pair of Phoebe Philo pants. I have three pairs coming. I want one to work out because they're insanely expensive. And I'm oh, going wow. to be so planning. You ordered three with the hopes of getting one successful, correct? You want to try on something. I mean, trousers are so like difficult, aren't they? they trousers are like very a, difficult. Here's my one of my issues with the Phoebe collection was these pants are zippered. And if you're... Oh, they're zippered? Some of them have zippers up the butt. Oh, that, but that's just the jeans. Okay, but if you're a small person, you can't alter those. How are you supposed to hem them? That's a no. I mean, she did also make sky-high platform shoes, so I think the idea is you get those. <laughs> yeah, try those on the four train. <laughs> For those who don't know, we are discussing Phoebe Philo's new collection drop, which was Monday, October 30th, and was treated like, I don't know, the Barbie movie coming out was in the summer. People were fainting with excitement for this launch. Fainting with excitement. I and it was people only just online. left mid-Zoom meeting on a really? Monday. I think it, it dropped at three and then people were just in a frenzy trying to get. <laughs> Wait, which pants did you get, Choma? Tell us about your cart. So one is called the Croc Trouser mm-hmm. in smoke gray pinstripe. Then there is the classic trouser in shroom, mushroom, shroom, get it? Mm. And it's mushroom colored. And then there, there's another pant that's similar. It's called the drops trouser in cigar, which is brown. So I, I'm, I like I'm the color of, names. I know. Well, you know, she's very intentional. You saw it in the flesh before it went up online, right? I did. And I, I should have tried it on, but I don't think that was on the cards. <laughs> And for you know, I didn't want to turn it into a shopping appointment. I wanted to be professional. Fine, but there was a, I did see the mum necklace in the flesh, and that's the one everyone's going crazy for. Yeah, that is definitely going to be a hero item. I feel like at the end of the year, 
Yeah. I think it's been sort of a funny Rorschach test to see, like, what people are drawn to uh, from this collection because everyone's looking and everyone's coming away with their different favorites. Christian did a funny piece of, like, six philophiles and what everyone put in their <laughs> cards. And some people, like Jenna Lyons, were too slow. She said she has a support group chat. She tried to get—she wanted the white jeans, a shirt, and some leather, and her dreams were dashed. There's another drop— and I think, it, you know, I think she set the tone now. We know what the vibe is. Um, you know, it's true, true, true Phoebe, cool Phoebe style. So I think she'll have a second, she'll have a second bite at the cherry. Well, it's nice to see a woman's independent brand really getting the traction that it deserves. Yeah, there's such a cult of her. For good reason. I know. Um, we also had great... Britney Spears content this week because her memoir dropped. Well, remember it last week. A lot of exciting s- surprise moments in uh, the Britney book. Christian also did a great piece on that and also about dressing up as Britney four years in a row. <laughs> Different Britneys. We're talking about Christian Allaire, senior fashion writer and Britney expert. Christian's costumes give me joy every time. I, it's weird doing Halloween in the UK for the first time. Yeah, what because... was that like? Is it as big a deal there? The thing is here is that people just wear spooky costumes. There I isn't... noticed that with Euros at, <laughs> at college. They just all put blood on themselves. Yeah, there's no... I think the imagination, and for me, it's like seeing, you know, you can you can already kind of see end of year best of lists based on the what comes through in the, in the costumes in the UK. US because it's such it's much more of a cultural it's so much more fun yeah to see I don't the spooky ones are just fine but yeah don't know I, I mean did you go like, to any parties none no I mean I'm I am, not. I feel like with kids Halloween is an entire week the day after Halloween on November first Arthur woke up and was like Mama it's still Halloween I was like it is not Halloween for another three hundred sixty four <laughs> days thank God. <laughs> Artie was Captain Hook. My mother-in-law got him this costume in August, and he's been extremely devoted to it ever since. So the whole family had to build (laughs) around that. Lloyd was a crocodile. Alice was Smee. I was Peter Pan. And the most important element, honestly, was uh, I had a Charlotte Tilbury liquid eyeliner that was a perfect Hook mustache. And that really (laughs) sealed the deal for Arthur. (laughs) Well, what did Heidi Klum, was there a, did she top her her worm moment? I don't know if anything can top the worm, it just in pure weirdness, but Heidi was a peacock and she had, um, they had uh, Cirque du Soleil (laughs) dancers as the plumes. Whoa. And her husband uh, was a peacock egg. There's, I have a lot of follow-up questions. (laughs) I mean, you got to hand it to her. She really, I mean, she's the queen of Halloween. She really Who is. Who else? Who else is, does it like her? No one. It is true commitment, so I, I respect that. <laughs> the run-through will be back in just a moment. I'm excited to tell you about Fat Mascara, an award-winning podcast hosted by two beauty journalists who share their insider access to the beauty industry. Twice weekly, hosts Jessica Matlin and Jennifer Sullivan talk candidly about beauty, news, trends, and the latest products and treatments. 
You can expect industry gossip, unfiltered product reviews, and revealing conversations with brand founders, makeup artists, perfumers, dermatologists, and more. Plus, Jess and Jen get their high-profile guests like Victoria Beckham and Tracy Ellis Ross to open up about their relationships with beauty culture. Fat Mascara is the beauty industry unfiltered. New episodes drop every Wednesday and Friday. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. We have two fabulous designers on the show today. First up, a conversation that our colleagues from Vogue Runway, Laia Garcia Furtado and Nicole Phelps had with designer Maria Cornejo. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've met Maria before, but I felt like I, I, I learned so much about her. I really didn't know uh, about her childhood and the fact that she, you know, she fled from Chile, the coup there, and, and now she ended up in Manchester. It's funny. You can hear it in her accent, though, because I really? went to school in Manchester. Yeah, yeah, she has... She has a slight twang and she loved Manchester for the same reason I did. She loved, you know, clubbing and such a... I love those stories about great, her doing poppers clubbing at like 16. <laughs> it's, so, it's, so, it's so Manchester. Manchester <laughs> is what they used to call it. Manchester. Oh my God. Maria's been running her label Zero Maria Cornejo for 25 years now. And, Very impressive. Um, this, right? She's built such a loyal following. So I'm really excited that this Monday she's going to be awarded the Jeffrey Bean Lifetime Achievement Award at CFDA. She really deserves it. I know. I learned so much from this interview. This is exciting. Yes, it is. So, uh, Maria. That's so scary. Yeah, but <laughs> no. To be in a room with you two. <laughs> but we're friends. I know, but still. Okay, so uh, we're here with Maria Cornejo, designer of Zero Maria Cornejo. So we're excited to have you on the pod also because um, I think we all have uh, an old, not old, a long history with you. So I met Maria when I worked at the store on Bleecker Street back in 2011. And I remember um, before that, I worked at a different store on Bond Street. And one day I was walking to work and I was walking behind you to my job at the store that was called Oak on Bond. And I was like, oh, my God, Maria Cornejo is like here. And I remember it felt like, you know, I had just like moved to the city a couple years prior and I felt very like I am where I'm supposed to be. Like New York is so cool that you can just like see cool designers like walking around when you're going to work. And then a couple of years later, we I, I worked there. Yeah, I, I remember. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I always think I'm really like invisible. No. Uh, it's funny that you said that because one time I was in Brooklyn at the YMCA and my friend said, you left and all these women were talking about you. And I, I just thought that nobody saw me. I was just <laughs> sweaty and doing, you know, gym stuff, you know. My uh, Maria origin story predates yours, Laia. I bet. <laughs> I was uh, new to Style.com, and we uh, review New York collections at Style.com, and I went to a show at your old store on Mott Street. So this is pre-Bleaker, I would say 2005, 2006, Wow, I love that little show when we did it in the store. Yeah, I remember. We it was only like thirty people, I think, maximum. But it was it was the right people to have there. It I was, felt. and I uh, <laughs> I had already shopped you, your uh-huh. clothes. I uh, even earlier than that, probably late nineties or very early two thousands. I bought a Zero Maria Cornejo. T- 
top from Barney's. So I knew a little bit about you mm-hmm. as uh, as I was walking in to do my first review of your of your collection. But I think I I wound up doing a big personal order from that very first very first collection. <laughs> That's how she gets you? I don't, I don't remember, but somebody said it's it's a little bit like an addiction, and I stuck. Yeah, and then further on further on this like interconnectivity between all of us. So when I worked at the store. Nicole used to, you know, do the reviews, so I would see Nicole come in the store, and then I'd be like, oh, my God, Nicole Phelps is here to do the review. And it was like, you know, because the the store on Bleecker, which is also where the, your studio is, yes. was really the epicenter. So it would be like Dick Page comes in before the show to do the makeup test. Like, it was such a cool, buzzy, like, place to be. So I felt... I mean, I was very lucky to work there, and I, I, still, I still feel that way. Oh, my God. You know, you know my biggest... Uh, guest, like, I mean, that I was so blown away with when we had the store on Mott Street when I first opened. I remember being in the back cutting things, and at the time, everything was made in the back, and we had three sewers. And, uh, you know, I was, I was cutting everything by hand, like layers upon layers of fabric. And the girl in the store came in the back and said, um, there's a little Japanese lady in the front who wants to talk to you. And, and I said, oh, Okay. And I went out and it was Ray Kawakua. <gasps> and she came in the back and did a tour. And then she bought the collection for Dover Street. That was amazing. It really gave me a lot of, uh, wow. I mean, she used to be on my pin board when I was at college. I had a one picture, you know, of Leslie Weiner wearing her coat. And that was like my inspiration, my muse, you know. Maria, can you d- describe your aesthetic? What do you think uh, Ray Kubo was attracted to when she saw it? Uh, my aesthetic. I think um, I've always tried to do my own thing. I mean, I originally when I started the story, it was just I wanted a, a place to work that I would be able to go home and be with my kids because my husband at the time was um, a photographer and I was working freelance for big fashion companies. And I just wanted to make things that I would want to wear that were still designed. I mean, this is New York in 1997. I just had a, a little boy, Joey, eight months. He's 25 now. And 12 feet tall. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I still wanted to look cool and interesting and modern and not look like a, you know, like a boring mom. And I just wanted to design things that were basically very much like a wardrobe. You know, I started with geometry and how different shapes drape on the woman's body and then moved on from there. And, you know, I used to go and look in jobbers and find bits of fabric and upcycle fabric. And, and the rest is like a long time ago. It's like history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say it's all a lot of geometric shapes. Um, it's things that when you look at them on the hanger, they 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 truly come alive when they're in a body, which I think is... What's really cool and what made the job of like selling the clothes in the store really interesting because, you know, you'd really have to be like, no, 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 trust me, like put this on. And then the women would come out of the fitting room like, oh, my God, you were right. This is amazing. So oh. it's very it was very that. You know, the, the interesting thing for me is that also because I opened the store and I had a six year old and eight months old, I was very aware of women's bodies and how we changed. So it was always about things that were not too size-specific. Everything had elastic on the back and pretty much still does, so it's stretchy. And everything is like, even the things that are more oversized. 
Some women who are size 14 will buy a size 2 because they want it closer to the body and then vice versa. We have women who are size 0 that want it really oversized, so they buy a size 14. So it's like the extremes. Size is such a, like, a, a weird thing. A complicated thing for women. Yeah, yeah, it is. And we change sizes constantly. I mean, and, yeah, and it's not like even the same throughout. So Yeah, it depends what you ate. It depends your time of the month. It depends whether you've just had kids. It depends, you know, whether you've been in Paris for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I wore your clothes a lot when I was pregnant. Yeah. I hope you still wear them, I, Of course Nicole. I do, but I, I mean, I really, I really did yeah. when I was pregnant. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's um, I just, also, I don't see why people have to throw away clothes just because they had them when they were pregnant or just specifically pregnancy clothes or specifically work clothes. I mean, if if it's a wardrobe, it should work no matter what, you know. Yeah. You know, I think what I've found over the years, like with the clients that we have, and we do have like a really wide range of clients from like regular New Jersey moms, lawyers, you know, of course, like. The, the, the well-known ones. But then people like Cindy Sherman that has like a 200-piece collection, you know. And, you know, we've dressed Michelle Obama. We've dressed, we've dressed different actresses like Tilda and stuff. But at the end, the core of it is that why we're still around is that we're dressing real women. Why know? do you think, though, that you have such like a, other than all of the, you know, cool moms in New Jersey that wear clothes, like that you have such like intellectual, creative, like Cindy, like Cindy came into the store. I sold, I sold her a pair of boots that I was wearing once and I was like very <laughs> excited that she was like, what are those? I think it was a like ultramarine suede little ankle boots that had a wedge. I wore those a lot. Anyway, why do you think that all of these like super smart, super cool, creative women are attracted to your clothes? I mean, I, I think because they can still be themselves and even though the clothes are designed, it becomes about them. So people remark how great they look or that, you know, like I've had artists say to me, well, like, you know, well, that, and then I got the job because I felt confident. I think, I think because I'm a bit of an introvert and I use clothes as a bit of a armor plating to go out into the world, I think I try to give that to women, a little bit of confidence, a little bit like, oh, here we go. And like the idea also, like for me, because I dress a bit like a boy most of the time, like the idea of a uniform and things that are really easy. But the way that you could wear something from the most recent season and uh, from, you know, 10 years ago together, mm-hmm. I think when I think about you, your aesthetic, your vision, your eye is very clear. You aren't looking outward so much and the trends are sort of irrelevant to, to what you do. And I think that's pretty rare in... I mean, I think it's very internal for me. You know, even I remember reviewing a collection with you and I, I remember saying to you, it's like the internet is like really overwhelming and all the prints were like pixelated. I feel like the world is pixelated. I never go for like an obvious inspiration. It always starts with the feeling and fabric and and it's always like quite emotional. You know, like there was one collection that was all about the the elements, you know, like the sea, wood, air. And I remember the dresses, the, the print was the sea. The other one was like green. The other one was like wood. And, you know, I think it's just, for me, that's the way I design. Because for me, in a weird way, ignorance is bliss. The less I know, because when you start looking, there's so much stuff out there. It's overwhelming. So I'd rather not know. But yeah, I mean, that print, I mean, it's, it's also for me... Everything is very, like, 
tied to memory or travel. And I remember that print it was we went to Turkey to see a factory that we work with that does our sustainable jersey. And um, I took my daughter Bibi, who was 18 at the time. And we went, and Marisha, of course, wanted to do every single thing in the city as we landed. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm the other way. I go for nature. So I said, okay, I want to do the ferry and just see everything from the water, like in a very sort of sand, calm way, (laughs) (laughs) very opposite. And so I took a picture of of the water as we were on the ferry, and that's the print. It's interesting. Marisha being your business partner. Yes. I think now we're gonna we're gonna kick it back to yeah, we're let's gonna take it all the way scroll back. back. <laughs> take to, it back to what? <laughs> to the beginning. To the be- I think you know, I think our listeners will wanna know a little bit more about your life. So you were born in Chile. Yes, okay. Uh, without sounding very sub story, I was born <laughs> in Chile. I left Chile when I was 11 because we had our 9-11 there, which was the other way around. It was a coup. Yes. And the Americans were bombing our president. The first Uh, uh, socialist, democratically elected president. Yes. So my parents were real socialists. Mm -hmm. So my dad was very disappointed that I became a fashion designer, (laughs) but he's not alive anymore. (laughs) Uh, So then we took refuge in Peru for a year. The United Nations got us out. You know, like living in churches and refuge houses and stuff, you know, where we would have to, like, pick up the mattresses on a Sunday so they could do the mass. And So then my dad, because he spoke English, he had applied to Cuba first because he was a total socialist. So when we were in Peru, I was totally brainwashed that I was going to end up in Cuba doing ballet and farming. Ballet is good in Cuba. They are... Yeah. yeah. Very good. So then what happened was the day that they came, they would come to the refuge house uh, from the embassy and they would say, okay, on the plane today we have five seats. And the day they came for us, for Cuba, we had gone to the beach. (laughs) So we missed that one. So the next one we got was the English one. So this is why I have this weird English accent because I learned to speak English when I was like 13, 12, 13 And I had the most amazing, you know, we were in London for like six months, again in a refugee house. And I thought everybody looked like a film star. Everybody had blue eyes and, you know, (laughs) the garbage men had blue eyes. And, you know, I was like, so so like, wow. And um, just so you understand why I don't like second hand clothes too much, we used to have to rummage through clothing and bedding in order to, to have things. Mm-hmm. So for me, the smell of musty clothes doesn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. It's somebody else's life. It's mm-hmm. somebody else's smell. And clothing is part of your personality. It's your armor. Yeah. So then I went, we were sent to Manchester and I think my mom died after two years of being there. And then I went to art school. And then, you know, my sister moved out. I ended up sort of being like mom to my two brothers and my dad. So I used to have to iron my everything on a Sunday, uniforms and stuff. Another reason why I hate ironing. <laughs> okay, just you don't so need you know. to iron your your zero clothes. I'll tell you that. No, I mean I'm like it's like crazy, but you know this is the things that stick in your head. Mm-hmm. You know when you're growing up. But um, you know I have also fond memories. You know I have. Um, I remember having this beautiful. Indian man who taught me to speak English and he spoke better than the Queen, you know. And then I ended up moving to London to do art school. 
I met my boyfriend, John Richmond, in a club, and I wanted to rebel, and my dad wanted me to go to college in Manchester, and I was like, no. <laughs> I said, I need to sort of break free, because I was about to have a nervous breakdown if I didn't. So it's the early 80s, and you're in design school in London. Yeah. What was your style like then? Oh, my God. I mean, the outfits. I did, you know, because I did get a job in a, in a vintage shop. So I used to mix, like, vintage. I, a lot of it was, like, thigh-high boots, leather shorts, <laughs> massive sweaters, you know. It was very like that, or it was, like, long. You know, in, when I was still at college, I had, like, I was wearing, like, long skirts and, like, head wraps. And I remember being in ID a lot because they kept photographing me for ID, so it was really funny, you know. I was always in... In the background, you know, in those days they did those straight-ups where they would interview people that they saw in the street or in a club. And, you know, I was like in my outfits, you know, I was like very proud of myself. So I went to Ravensbourne in, in, in London, which was actually a great school to go to at the time. And also in fashion school in London, they're pretty tough. They're, they're horrible to you in the first year <laughs> because they want to break you down. So basically, they, they sort of weigh you down to the point that I remember designing something, and I designed this whole collection based on, like, you know, like it was, I think it was football, American football, and everything it had these pads and everything, and I had the drawings and everything. And the teacher at the time said to me, Well, you didn't do the back drawing, so for all I know, it could be fucking Mickey Mouse on the back. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> oh, yes. So did you meet uh, John Richmond at design school? No, I met no. him in, uh, this is what I was saying, I met him in a club in Manchester. I was in, I used to go to this gay club from the age of 16, you know, I mean, God knows what we were thinking. We used to hang out at Slack Alice. We used to go clubbing and do poppers, <laughs> get drunk, you know. I mean, we were like teenagers and we were all go, and my dad at the time, who was really young, I mean, my mom died when she was 34, so my dad must have been about 36, 37, with three teenagers and a six-year-old. He came to the club sometimes to see what we were up to, oh, oh my God. to make sure we were safe. And then when he saw that it was a gay club, he let you. Yes. <laughs> he was like, okay, bye. <laughs> so that's why my introduction to the whole gay scene in Manchester, like, you know, like also the Hacienda, I used to go to like, you know, Pips, which had the Bowie room, the Roxy room. And, you know, in England, there's no real nature. And if you don't have money, you just go clubbing. And how did the, your, your first brand sort of get off its feet? Well, John had graduated before the year before me. So John finished and then I finished and I did my collection and Joseph and Whistle bought my college collection, my first collection. And then we decided that it was easier just to do it together. And we worked together for about three and a half years, which were like major because we had this Japanese backers and Italian backers, and we opened like 23 of our own stores in Japan when I was 23. Were there any any lessons or, or things when you started, you know, zero a couple of later of years after where you're like, okay, I'm not going to do this that that you learned from Richmond? I mean, one of the main things I learned from, not from that, I learned from actually after working together, I did a, a couple of seasons in Paris on my own when Mark and I got together, and I just learned that I wanted to go and learn on other people's time and money. So I went to work for other people. I did not want to be in front. Hence why it's called Zero. And that's why I didn't, when I first opened, my name wasn't on the clothes. 
I wanted people to see a face value. Hmm. I didn't know that part of the yeah. of the story. So what would you say, uh, you know, you started this business in the late 90s. Did Was there a point where you felt, oh, I've made it? Or do you remember an early success where you felt like, wow, I'm on the right track? I mean, to be honest, I think on the outside, yes, uh, getting the Cooper Hewitt Design Award. You know, that was a big, it was 2006. That felt like a big sign of respect, but at the same time, I felt really irrelevant because when you see the other people that were being given prizes that night, I was like, it was like Jonathan I for Apple. <laughs> so I was like me and my little frock feeling <laughs> a little bit like under-deserving, you know? This year has been really emotional, actually, because it's 25 years. My son is 25. I shot with my ex-husband. We're not divorced. You know, I'm a grandmother. It's like, uh, it's sort of, uh, do I feel like I've made it? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. So you have a huge year, yes, personally, and then and work. I mean, and, and, and now you they they announced that you're getting the Jeffrey Bean Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, which is it's, it's sort of I you know me I'm I'm sarcastic because I grew up in England, so I can't <laughs> help it when, when some, you know when they call me. I think it was Stephen Cole. Um, it was like seven thirty in the morning. He was texting me. I need to talk to you, and I was like. Oh my God, what happened? What did I do? <laughs> so I pick up, and it was actually weirdly enough the day that it was the anniversary since I opened the store, the 28th of June. And he told me, and, you know, he said, Tom and I, and, you know, we really believe that you. And I was like, I said, Is somebody here? I'm dying or something. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you only give those to people who are sort of dead. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing. And I think I will enjoy it after the fact. But right now, it's been such an immense year. I, I need to have a moment where you sort of stop and smell the roses. And I think that will be at the end of the year. One thing you always you always talk about is how sustainability is sort of a woman-led uh, endeavor. You know, there's a lot of women out there who are women designers who are pursuing this. Why do you think that is? And can you go into a little bit of detail about some of your uh, efforts to make the brand more sustainable? Uh, I mean, I think personally the sustainability thing came because I had two children and I was just obsessed with what we leave behind. I read this book. You know, The World Without Us. Great book. Yes. And having children, you just become so in tune with the world and everything and your responsibility. I mean, you guys know. I mean, I don't have to. And so when I first started, I started just by buying fabric from like jobbers, you know, like end of lots. I used to go and search like upcycle stuff and I wasn't ordering anything new. And as the collection developed, we were buying fabrics from other people. You know, we started this the Bolivian knitters, you know, that we work with the women's co-op. And in order to support them and support their kids, you know, they, I thought it was really good to get them to sign each piece because to me that was the idea of luxury, knowing who made your clothes and for them to take pride in that. Because for them, it's a sense of pride what they made, you know. I didn't make that, of course. It was designed in-house. We did it, but, you know, it's not like I literally sat there and knitted it. They sit there and knit with their children on the bottom, you know, like it allows them to support their communities. And like they say, you know, if you support a woman, 
things change because mm-hmm. it affects the community. Do you feel like customers are paying more attention to that or are they more curious about that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, one of the things that, one of the reasons that we've survived like 9-11, endless amounts of uh, recessions in New York. I mean, you name it, we've had it here. I mean, it's like it's a story of survival to sort of still be in New York after 25 yeah. years. Things that were made locally, people responded to that. You know, the things that were made in New York, they understood. I remember having a conversation when we had the store on Mott Street and this one was women and Ari about their prices. And I said, well, I'll show you why things cost what they cost. And I took her in the back and I said, these three people have health insurance. Things are getting made here. But I think nobody buys anything because it's sustainable. My thing has always been since the beginning, and I, you know, I was one of the first people to start sustainability at the CFDA and things, is that nobody buys anything because it's sustainable. At the end of the day, we want beautiful things, and the plus factor is that it's sustainable. I feel yeah. like that's it's different in food, you know? Yeah. I feel like maybe food is the the first step for people. And once yeah. we, we insist on organic food or vegetarian food, yeah. you know, it's a very long process. But I think at some point, yeah. the culture will get yeah. there. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I always said, you know, like the trends start from food, like local, organic. and But with clothing, I think it's because things are getting made all over the place and There's a lot of big companies producing all over the world. And I remember once talking and saying, why are we shipping this from there and there? It needs a passport. What's the point? Mm -hmm. So, you know, America doesn't have a textile industry except for Jersey, not even denim anymore. So we were bringing fabrics in and making everything in New York because I thought it's like, how do you justify shipping this all around the world? It just doesn't make sense. But, you know, people will always consume, I think, but at least now people are doing things that are more upcycle. Nobody's going to stop consuming or traveling, and that's the reality. Yeah. But I think people are making smarter choices when they can. What do you do to sort of, you know, relax and, and recharge? I love walking on an empty beach. You know, Jacob Reese in the winter with a friend. And what recharges me is nature. Yeah. Always. Do you watch any, like, bad TV or read it? You know, do you have a of guilty course. pleasure, Maria? Disco- of course. I Let's watched, talk about it. I watched Beckham the other night because I was so oh, depressed. That was so good. I was so depressed. I thought I need some mindless entertainment. <laughs> it was really sweet, actually. Also, you know, because I grew up in Manchester, there was a lot about Manchester United. So I was like, oh, yeah, I, know, I remember that. And the Hacienda. So I, I, there was, like, some reference points that we had in common, except he's a little bit younger than me, I think. Just, <laughs> Just about, a little bit. Just a bit. He dyes his hair, though. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> and his beard. Thank you, Maria, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I mean, it means a lot, especially because I've known you both for so long. And to be in the Condenas offices, I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you at the CFDA Awards. I Can't I wait. Know. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. The run-through will be back in just a moment. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this 
is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. And we're back. Oh, that Maria conversation was just so lovely. Well, next up is a conversation from our colleagues with the longtime designer Vera Wang, the one and only Vera Wang. Truly. Um, yeah. And Nicole was joined by um, our colleague Mark Colgate, and he's the Vogue's fashion news director. Yes, and I think a lot of people don't know that Vera worked at Vogue back in the day. Yeah, she was yeah. an editor for almost 20 years before she went on to create the preeminent bridal empire. I uh, didn't realize it was 20 years. I know, me neither. That's a long time. It's a very long time. Um, so I loved hearing about her early days at Vogue and how she made that leap and just how different the Vogue ecoculture was, ecosystem was then. Um, oh, it was yeah, fun. It was so different. Flashback. <laughs> so without further ado, here is Vera. So um, one of the things, it's so funny because I was thinking, when did I first meet Vera? And I remember, Vera, I met you in December 2003. And I had just started at Vogue. I think I met you in maybe my first week or second week at Vogue. And um, <laughs> uh, I did a story on you, your, your launch of Fine Jewelry. And I came over to your That's studio right. atelier to meet you. But what I do remember is Sally Singer, because I was working for Sally Singer, the wonderful Sally Singer at the time. And yes. she, um, she kept saying, Anna wants to know if you're busy, me, if I'm busy. Are, are we keeping him busy? Are we getting our money's worth out of him already? So, so I was dispatched off to talk to you about your fine jewelry. And, you know, and I think it was, a, it was a kind of wonderful moment for me because when I moved to New York in 2000, you know, I heard a lot about your shows and these very beautiful kind of special poetic shows that you were doing. And there was a kind of real buzz, I think, when I came to New York about you and your work. But talk to me, because obviously, so I started at Vogue and met you, which was wonderful. But I'd love to hear you tell us about your start at Vogue. Well, I came probably um, many decades before you, Mark. Not many. I mean, many, many. Um, I think, I'd like to think it was 1973. Hmm. And I remember at the time Mrs. Freeland had just left. And I had, you know, gone to Paris to study at the Sorbonne. And I had met some very dear ladies who worked at French Vogue at the time. And we were all very, very young, but they were ready at French Vogue. And I didn't really know what an editor was, believe it or not. I had a mother that was a real clothes horse, but I didn't really understand. And through them, I got extremely intrigued by the magazine and how they featured fashion. And so I was determined that when I got back to New York, after I finished undergraduate, that I would try to get a job in fashion. I ended up doing sort of this gig in the summer to earn college money at Saint Laurent, Rive Gauche. And there I met Frances Stein, 
who said to me, when you get out of college, give me a call and I will hire you for Vogue. And I was just overcome with joy and excitement. And I called my mother and she said, oh, they're not going to give you a job. She's just being polite. So when I did graduate, I did call Francis and the famous Mary Campbell. And I did get a job as a rover. So I started as a rover at Vogue. And can you remember what you wore on your first day? And can you remember what you did on your first day? That's sort of a famous story. I hate to say it. I wore a white Saint Laurent crepe robe chemise shirtwaist. And at that particular collection, Eve had done a collection of the 40s, post-war. Hmm. So I wore a platform shoe. I think it was in royal blue leather with an ankle strap and a white dress. And I had red lacquered nails. I guess I got to Vogue thinking that I was worthy of coming to Vogue. Polly Mellon turned to me and said, what are you doing? First of all, the first question was, are you a genius? And I said, no. She said, then you better get a paper and a pad. It actually made sense after I got to know Polly because she'd rattle off this stuff at me. But that was one of my first conversations with her. The other one was, please go home and change into jeans and a T-shirt and some sneakers because you're going to be packing, unpacking clothing in the coffins and jewelry and all that stuff. And um, I never really looked back after that. Mm. I mean, I remember one day I came in Alex Lieberman in the art department and they had a Saint Laurent crop little military Navy jacket and pants. And he said, please go home and change. I like you better the other way. <laughs> so that's a true Alex Lieberman story. So they liked you in jeans and a t-shirt? They liked it, yeah. I think people don't realize how creating pictures is not a glamorous job. It's a very serious job. It involves being extremely physical. It's very, very tiring. You can spend long, long hours in the studio and preparing in the closet, the Vogue closet, and scarecrows laying out the clothes and accessories and everything else and packing. It is almost, it's like making a film. But it was the most incredible training I think anyone could ever have. So you went on to work at Ralph Lauren as an accessories designer. Mm -hmm. What about the work that you did at Vogue prepared you for that? And, and was it intimidating to, you know, this idea oh, of that's going great to work question. in accessories? That's great, Nicole, because many people ask that kind of question. Why are you qualified? Mm -hmm. I think that at that time there was a trend where Calvin and Ralph were hiring a lot of people from Vogue. Grace Connington at work to Calvin. Um, I went to Ralph. And I think both probably admired the education and taste level and experience of Vogue editors. I mean, I could only think that would be the reason. You know, I became design director for all of women's licensing. It's what it really was. And that included also some clothing. It wasn't only purely accessories, but it was 28 lines, some of which had, you know, 15 divisions and five deliveries a year, such as shoes. Can you remember some of the, uh, the first things that you designed for Ralph? What were they like? I remember one thing I got really excited about. He had a Glen plaid that was sort of his signature, and he'd made luggage out of it and everything else, and I took it and made, made it canvas totes and, you know, reprinted that print because he loved plaids. I mean, he used to study 
all the Scottish. I mean, it was really a study because he had an incredible library for us to use. And I remember putting it in canvas so there were totes and bags that were lighter and more maybe contemporary. And I remember the first time I saw a woman on the street with it, and I got hysterically happy. And I came back to my team, and they said, oh, Vera, get over it. There's so much (laughs) Ralph out there. I mean, I was thrilled because I'd never had that experience, ever. I'd never been on the design side. Exactly. I remember sometime being on the subway and seeing someone read the copy of Vogue. You're like, okay. Exactly. I mean, after all the work we all put in, to see it actualized with real people, I think is ultimately the goal, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Ultimately. Yeah. People aspire to see something that's out of the ordinary, although that may not be our everyday existence. You talked about the idea of fashion and being out of the ordinary and maybe a bit of a segue, but it feels like that was also kind of in some ways the the driving inspiration for the establishment of your own brand. Because what was interesting to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here because I may be, is that the, the bridal part of your, your label and the kind of couture special evening yes. kind of happened simultaneously, you know. Is, they did. Is that, is that, so, so we'd love to hear a little bit about what you wanted to say with your own brand. And um, I lived through many fashion earthquakes, but that was certainly a moment. It had been the moment of um, Christian Lacroix who came on the scene and with that level of theatricality and knowledge and constructive clothing, I mean, extraordinary. I mean, truly in the old-fashioned sense of couture, couture. And that was a big moment for Lacroix. And at the same time, it was going on at many, I think Lanvin was having a very, very big moment. Um, A lot of these houses, it was the moment of bonfire of the vanities. It was the 80s. It was the Trumps. It was New York Society. And it was, you know, charity balls every night. You know, when I started, the real reason I started my own company was I was really extremely happy at Ralph Lauren. I have to be honest. And it was great to work for a company that had so much available to you as a designer. I mean, if you wanted to study a certain knit, there was a whole yarn department. I mean, you know, it's like being in a candy store working there. And then I got engaged at 39 and three quarters. I was a fashion nun. And Ralph said, don't be a fashion nun like all these other women I know. And I said, well, I don't know if I have any control over that. But, you know, when I finally got engaged, I started to look for a wedding gown. And I was just shocked at what was out there because it wasn't even about age or ageism, but I was just about 40. And there was, after Vogue and Ralph, there was nothing really that I found suitable for me. And I saw this sort of limited choice of attire, whether you wanted to wear a suit or if you wanted to wear a pair of beautiful trousers and a blouse or you wanted to wear the most extraordinary ball gown, it didn't exist. And my father was the one who we went with me. We were in Paris. We actually went to Cherer. We went to, at the time, my friend Tina Chow was very close to Carl Lagerfeld, wanted me to wear Chanel. And I was a design director at Ralph Lauren, so it was sort of an awkward moment, but 
you know, Ralph and I sorted through it. He said, I don't want to do the dress because if you're unhappy, it's going to be odd and I want you to be happy. And so, you know, I started looking with my father in Paris. He said, there's nothing in between going to Couture in Paris and then what's in Saks Fifth Avenue or Bertorf. So there seemed to be this whole space in between these two worlds. And that's when my father said, I think you should start a company. And he'd identified this. It was, I remember talking to Calvin. He said he was so shocked when I said, I'm going to start a bridal company. So the very first dress I did was for Anna for Vogue. The very first bridal dress I designed, it was Ivory Duchess, very, very conservative, and with black velvet trim, which was verboten and mm. bridles were black. I mean, my God, that was, you know. And it, I did it for the Vogue, the, the piece that Vogue um, did on me. So you were kind of sensing that move to a kind of more minimalistic. Yes. Because that was starting Definitely. to percolate. I mean, Mucha Prada's early, early, early Prada The Dubofoss cashmere, yeah. I still remember, yeah. yeah. And um, that's really when I started my company, 1989. And then I just felt this feeling to provide something more minimal and something more structured and something more architectural. And, you know, and then, of course, over 30, it'll be 35 years next year, I've had to change because times have changed and brides have changed and life has changed. So I've tried to always morph, you know, into different things. So you're redefining bridal, you're modernizing bridal, and at the same time, you are starting to dress celebrities. And yes. I want to talk about Holly Hunter in the Oscars dress, because to me, that was the height of chic. It's 1994. She is going up on stage to win uh, the Best Actress Award for the piano, which is worth a rewatch for anybody who oh hasn't God. seen it lately. It's I have to say, I watched that movie. I remember actually just broken up with someone. I went to see that. I sobbed. <laughs> I saw We relate, sobbed. don't we? Our personal life sobbed, to many brother. of our career moments. But I actually can't remember seeing the film because I was too <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. Talk about making that dress. That's so interesting, Nicole, that you brought that particular dress up. At the time, I was very involved in that kind of square neckline and sort of like an overall, but very minimal. And... Holly had just come out of the piano, and she had complained to me that she'd worn these very heavy corsets and steel cage, you know, constructs below the skirts, very Marie Antoinette level of undergarment and steel, actually. And she said, Vera, I just want to go as myself, and I want to go, because I was considered quite a minimalist when I started. And she said, I just want to wear something that is glamorous but very modern. So gone were the wigs and the braids and the bonnets and the hoop skirts. And when she came on to win for Best Actress, it was as minimal as I could make it and still have a bit of shine to it. So... It was three, maybe three different fabrics in one dress, which was quite a simple silhouette. And it was black silk crepe in the bodice, no lining, um, zero lining, which I love. If you can clean finish a dress, it's the best. It's the lightest anyway. And down below was the Schlepfer um, fabric that was done in 
a very, very light mousseline that was heat set in stone, but very, very far apart. And over it, we, we veiled it, which became a signature of me later on in ready-to-wear and in bridal. And that was the wonderful thing that, you know, I used, often used to get to do is really collaborate, you know, deeply with a star because there's nothing like that one-on-one, you know, sharing. There's something wonderful about being able to share in creating an aesthetic together. And also so seismic. You know, uh, we forget now, but it, it was it, the idea of someone making a fashion statement on the red carpet was really in its infancy. You know, it was not. Totally. Well, one thing um, I would actually love to ask you about is uh, I was kind of uh, amazed and um, impressed to learn, uh, Vera, that you were a figure skater and you were in the top 20 figure skaters mm-hmm. in the United States. That's kind mm-hmm. of incredible. Congratulations. I, no it wasn't idea. the top three, so anyway. But top 20, I mean, I'd be in the top 20,000 and even then. No, <laughs> I've like, always thought. 20,001. I don't know. I've, I think my whole life I've, I've said in, when I speak to students has been motivated by not quite making the bar, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I spent about 15 years skating, and it's a rigorous, deceivingly difficult sport. It's meant to look easy, but if you've ever tried to stand on the ice, you'll understand what it is. And, um, you know, I failed to make the Olympic team, and that was, you know, huge drama. One thing I've always really admired about you, Vera, is is that you're very generous towards other designers. You know, you're very vocal and I think a really wonderful supporter established in you. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, obviously, I you know think about someone like Rick Owens, but I also remember yes. a few years back. Um, I'm in being, part Rick today. <laughs> but I also remember being in Barney's mm-hmm. um, on Madison when we still had a Barney's in Madison, and uh, you were trying on some Vetmore. I was with Lynn yes. Yeager, and then you were, and you yes. looked amazing in it. So I, I do really. I don't. Maybe that's the editor in you, or just maybe it's. It just... is absolutely. You guys could have done this interview. I didn't. No. Need to, no. Um, I have to say that will never leave me. You can't have that be a part of your life for, I'll just round it off to 20 years. You just can't. It doesn't leave you. I applaud creativity. I applaud real thinking and original voice, which is no easy thing today. I know how difficult this industry is on all sides because I've been on all sides. And I'm very appreciative when you see a voice or someone that may not even have been celebrated for a very long time and worked their way up very quietly. Vera, you're getting an award from the CFDA for bridal. What kind of advice do you give to brides? And uh, it could be a celebrity. It could be not a celebrity. A lot of brides that call in 35 years. I tried to get a count. It isn't quite McDonald's. But <laughs> I did try to think that I think there was something like some insane number, like 20,000 by year four. And, and not just obviously in our our upper, upper, uppermost and the more couture end, but certainly in, you know, my other lines. And I think what I try to say is this is really your day. I've always tried to encourage women, no matter what age, to be themselves, no matter what their lifestyle, no matter where they live. I think women should derive pride from being who they are because you are one of a kind. Your experiences, your life— how you choose to live it. And certainly on your wedding day, that's when it all really takes on another level of intensity. And for me, I I try to 
provide certainly a wide enough range of clothing that women can express themselves. It makes you realize it's one of the few things that we can still celebrate. It's it's the most optimistic thing Mm -hmm. people do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the love of the desire to commit, the desire to celebrate life, the respect you give to each other. It's way deeper than just creating wedding gowns. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Really. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. The Run for Revoke is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis and Gabe Kiroga and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you soon. Bye. everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in?